Hello, and welcome back to Current Account. I'm your host, Clay Lowry, the Executive Vice President here at the Institute of International Finance. On Current Account, I tried to talk about what I see as the most important current issues in international finance and economics, while providing my own angle on U.S. politics and policy when appropriate. This week, I'm going to talk to you about what actually happened to me this week. I was asked to testify before the Senate Banking Committee. That's one of the key committees in our Congress here in the United States. The issues that the Senate Banking Committee asked me to testify on were, first, the economic impact on Russia due to the sanctions regime that was put in place in 2022. Second, what are some of the lessons that can be drawn if we think about putting sanctions on China from the United States? And third, the idea of what's called an outward bound investment screening mechanism, which would be something new in the United States, but using a prism of a committee called CFIUS. CFIUS stands for the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. I'll go through that a little bit more as we go along. Before I talk about what I discussed, I should give a little bit of context, which is the Senate Banking Committee also asked two other people, Kevin Wolf, who had worked in the Obama administration and is an expert on export controls, and Dilip Singh, who was one of the key architects of the Russian sanctions for the Biden administration, testified with me. We received questions from, I think there was probably about five or six Democratic senators and seven or eight Republican senators. So we got questions on a lot of different issues. And I'll try to hit upon what I think that their biggest worries were as I go through this presentation. But as to the three things that I testified to, the first, as I said, was the United States, along with a number of allies, imposed arguably the most robust financial sanctions package in history. It was unprecedented in terms of the size of the economy being sanctioned. Russia is the 11th biggest economy in the world. The comprehensiveness of the sanctions regime, the multilateral cooperation and implementation, and the speed in which the program was put into place. So we've had a year. How did it work? I think that the biggest thing we have to figure out is what is the objective of sanctions? And there are a variety of different ones that were put in place. One was to be a disincentive for Russia actually invading Ukraine. Obviously, that didn't work. The second is to change Russia's behavior or to punish Russia, uh, particularly its economy, and hopefully maybe incentivize a change in its behavior in the future. From an economic perspective, the shock that was supposed to happen to Russia's economy from the sanctions regime, in some respects, did not happen. So there were a number of observers who thought that Russia's economy, due to the sanctions regime, would contract economically by anywhere from 8 to 15% of GDP, which is a huge contraction. The IIF is one of those that actually made those projections. In the end, however, Russia's economy contracted somewhere between 2 and 3% of GDP, which is a significant contraction, but it's not nearly as great as anyone had expected. Now, why is that? I think there are three main reasons. The first is, although the sanctioned regime was expansive or comprehensive, there were major carve-outs. The major carve-outs, of course, were the exports for Russia of natural gas, oil, and petroleum products. These exports allowed Russia to run a current account surplus that was nearly double in 2023 what it was in 2022. That means there was $100 billion extra money that Russia could use to provide liquidity for the financial markets and 
have revenue to prop up its fiscal position. In addition to its export of fossil fuels, another maybe hole in the sanctions regime was while a significant percentage of the Russian banking system was sanctioned, including kicking them off the SWIFT messaging system, which I think we've discussed in the past, freezing the assets, losing access to the dollar and euro funding, there were still parts of the Russian banking system that were not sanctioned. And so Russia was able to diversify a lot of its assets in the banking system to these other banks. So it does go to show it that sometimes even a very comprehensive and expansive regime may not be comprehensive and expansive enough. The second area, I think, was in multilateral coordination. The administration, the Biden administration, and as well as the UK and the EU, did a great job in putting together a plan among all the different countries across the G7 and beyond. But in some respects, it probably wasn't successful enough. And that's because even though Russian oil export volumes fell across the EU and Japan and Korea and several other countries, it picked up and actually on aggregate was larger. So this is not about price. This is about volume because countries such as China and India and Turkey increased their purchases. The third area is adaptability. And this is something that any sanctions expert would always talk to you about, which is how does a country adapt to the sanctions you put in place? So in Russia's case, Russia had actually been working for a while since the 2014 sanctions. This is when Russia took over Crimea from Ukraine, and there was a number of sanctions put in place. So they had been creating what they would call the Fortress Russia to basically insulate themselves from more sanctions. In some respects, that helped them cushion the blow as the sanctions regime in 2022 was put in place. Maybe more importantly is that the Central Bank of Russia took swift and decisive measures and acted very, very competently and soundly by they provided liquidity, they doubled interest rates, put in place capital controls, forced foreign currency deposits to be converted to rubles. All of these steps were emergency steps, but it allowed the exchange rate and the banking system to stabilize. As the stability was realized, a number of these measures were removed. In the end, this does not mean that the sanctions regime was a failure. It just means it didn't have as immediate an impact as some had predicted. In fact, actually, what we have seen is the sanctions are clearly having an impact on Russia's warfighting materials. There has been a brain drain from Russia as citizens and skilled Russians have basically left the country. And it is most likely to lead towards a steady decrease in productivity and economic activity for years to come. That's probably not going to be good for Russia over a long period of time. And they will unfortunately suffer as an economy, but it just wasn't nearly as sharp of suffering as I think some had thought would be the case. The second area I was asked to address was what would this mean if you did something like this for China? So it was not about judgment about whether this should happen or whether it shouldn't happen, but what would it mean? I tried to look at it. And the biggest difference between China and Russia, besides the fact that China hasn't invaded another country, is that the Chinese economy is just a different animal than Russia's, both in scope and scale. For instance, China's GDP is 10 times larger than Russia's. Exports are seven times greater than Russia's. Its imports are almost nine times greater. Foreign direct investment stock in China is six times greater than Russia. And its outward bound investment stock is five times greater than Russia. Its commercial banking sector is many, many times 
greater than the assets of Russia's banking system, and its domestic bond market is much, much larger. The three key insights I suggested to the committee based on these big differences, comparing in some respects an apple to an orange, are that China, like Russia, has a significant current account surplus. But instead of being a major commodity exporter, as Russia is, China instead is the top exporter of manufactured goods. In fact, its share of manufactured exports is more than twice the size of Russia's share of energy and fuel exports when you look at it on a global economy basis. And as noted in the Russia case, a current account surplus works to the advantage of a country that could be the sanctioned target. Second, international coordination was difficult in the case of Russia. I think it'll be much, much more difficult in the case of China. Part of that is because the enmity towards China is not nearly as great as it, as it has been towards Russia. And that includes, by the way, the United States. But maybe more importantly, countries do a lot of business with China. And each country naturally considers its own interests when it's participating in a sanctions regime. And so while the many countries have been motivated to implement sanctions on Russia, we have often seen that it has been a struggle to get those countries coordinated. China's much broader and deeper engagement in the international economic system suggests that this struggle will be much greater and that the motivation to implement sanctions is likely to be much weaker. The third point I made is the problem of implementation risk. Implementation risk is harder to measure, but basically the idea is that sanctions regimes are very complex and it's not like a switch. Today we don't have sanctions and tomorrow we do. And then the next day we don't. It doesn't work like that. And it's hard to do these things. Financial institutions around the world, whether they're in Europe or the United States or Japan, have struggled to put in the sanctions place. They're trying to comply, but all the different jurisdictions that are putting in sanctions make it very difficult. So any type of sanctions regime, implementation risk is something that needs to be considered. And the bottom line that I tried to tell the Senate is that sanctions regimes are difficult to implement. Multilateral cooperation is complicated, particularly for larger economies. You can't plug every leak. And finally, what is the objective you're trying to achieve? Because probably shouldn't set it too high because it probably won't achieve that. The last point I was asked to talk about was CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. This is because I actually used to run CFIUS when I served in government. And there are lessons that can be learned about how to implement CFIUS, which is basically a, a system to look at foreign investments, mergers, acquisitions that come into the United States and look at it through a national security lens. So if somebody from a country is a threat to the United States, are they buying and purchasing something that could prove to be a, a vulnerability? to United States national security. And if that's the case, so there's a threat and a vulnerability of what's being purchased and who the purchaser is, then CFIUS needs to look at it and decide whether or not this purchase should be allowed to continue. It's a tough issue, hard to do, but the best thing I think is that the United States tries to do it in a way that is about protecting national security and welcoming foreign investment. Some people call that a balance. I actually never do. And the reason I don't call it a balance is because there is no balance. It's basically those are two objectives that we just need to get right. 
And for me, like there's some principles you need to realize, which is you minimize the opportunity for politicizing transactions. So in other words, it should be about the technical issues, not about politics. Second is you try to keep CFIUS narrowly focused on national security. Don't make it about a bunch of other economic issues that really have nothing to do with national security. Otherwise, the United States becomes a protectionist society. And third, you try to ensure that there's accountability of the executive branch. And that basically means that the executive branch should be held to account for the decisions it's made by Congress. And the reason I was asked to bring all that up is because there has been some discussion about an outward bound investment screening mechanism. Some people call that a reverse CFIUS. Basically, should we have, if somebody, if a company wants to finance joint ventures or investment in another country, should there be a screening mechanism? And there's different ways of looking at it, but the main thing is, is this would be something that's very new for the United States. It's hard to do. So the implementation risk on this is high. The temptation is to basically just say what I just said, which is to use very vague and ill-defined terms, which makes no sense for businesses because they need to have concrete and very specific knowledge before they put in a regime such as this. And we have to realize that we're not trying to create what we don't like. In other words, in the United States at least, Putting government controls on private sector transactions, particularly in cases that have nothing to do with national security, is not only likely to harm the competitiveness of the United States, but it is going to, my guess, prove counterproductive to our own national security as well as our own values. Before I wrap up, I should mention the issues that the Congress seem most interested in. I think they're interested in a few things. How effective have the Russian sanctions been, which obviously I just went through some of that, whether or not there should be more sanctions on Russia to try to change what's happening there and whether or not that could be effective. There was clearly a lot of questions about CFIUS, particularly in the agriculture sector, which maybe surprised me a little bit, which was that there was a lot of questions about purchases of agricultural land in the United States by foreign countries or foreign entities and whether or not that creates national security risks. Anyway, the conversation was very technical. It was very bipartisan. And it was actually a pleasure and an honor to, to be talking to the Senate. And hopefully it was helpful to the senators as they think through legislation as well as policy. So let me do the three, two, one. These are my three takeaways from the podcast, two things I'm looking forward to, and my one sports fact. The three things that I take away are first, the sanctions regime on Russia has been somewhat effective, though not as dramatically effective as people had originally thought. Second, trying to figure out technically, at least, an economic impact on China, if there ever was a sanctions regime, is very difficult to discern from just thinking about what was done with Russia. And third, an outward bound investment screening mechanism is something that everyone should do cautiously and try to learn the lessons that we have learned in other areas such as CFIUS. The two things I'm looking forward to are first, in terms of the outward bound investment screening mechanism, 
the Biden administration is supposedly looking at an executive order to try to implement some of those issues. I don't know whether or not that will happen, but we have to keep our eyes peeled for that and also for the reaction from Congress. And second, the day that I testified, there were also hearings in the House of Representatives, and there was even a primetime hearing on China specifically. So Congress clearly is trying to figure out how to address China. And so we'll have to keep our eyes open to what could happen in the future and whether or not the United States would take further actions against China based on congressional action as opposed to just executive branch action. And now my one sports fact of the week. It is to talk about a world record that had stood for 41 years, which was the longest in track history. It was the 400-meter run for the indoors. It was broken just as last week by 22-year-old Dutch woman Femke Bull. Now, Femke Bull is a hurdles expert. She, is the, she won the bronze in the Olympics in the 400-meter hurdles. And last year, she won the silver medal in the world championships in the 400-meter hurdles. But this was in the 400-meter no hurdles, indoor track, and she had a time of 49.26 seconds. The previous record holder was a woman from Czechoslovakia from 1983 named Jarmila Kracevilova. When I saw that she had broken this record, I did start looking what are the oldest records in track and field? And it turns out there are a number of records that were set in this time frame, 1983 to 1986 or 87. And they were set almost exclusively by people from behind what we used to refer to as the Iron Curtain. So East Germany, Czechoslovakia, the Soviet Union, etc. There was obviously been discussion for years were performance-enhancing drugs helping these athletes or not? And then, if that is the true with world records, should they basically have an asterisk next, next to their name? This is something that happens in baseball all the time because in baseball, there are performance-enhancing drugs that seem to improve a lot of players' abilities. And some of those players, even though they had amazing careers and set records, can't get into the Hall of Fame because of that. Does something like that need to be this case in track and field? I don't know. I don't know enough about track and field, but I can say this. Femke Bull doesn't appear to have taken any performance enhancing of drugs, and it was very good to see her break a record that had stood for 41 years. And my guess is she'll continue onward because she's only 22. Anyway, that's going to wrap up this episode of Current Account. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback on the show as we constantly look to improve and enhance the experience for you, the listener, and we can be reached at podcast at IIF.com. All of our episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening and goodbye.